Well, let me say again, we are really glad you've joined us this morning to hear from Mark's Gospel, to hear from Jesus Christ. And I want to begin with a question for us all to ponder. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Perhaps for some it would be deeply personal questions. How can I be sure what will happen to me when I die? Have I done enough? Is being good, good enough? For others, it might be deeply painful questions. Why did this awful event happen in my life? Why did that family member die so young? And let me just say on that, we don't claim to have easy answers, but we do think Jesus provides real hope in a tragic and broken world. I guess for others, though, that the questions would be more philosophical. Why do you allow things like coronavirus in this world? For some, they might be more evidential. If you're really God and you're really there, why don't you prove it? What about you, then? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Perhaps one or two listening in this morning might think, well, this whole thing is a bit of a waste of a time exercise because there probably isn't a God. And even if there is, he's not going to be knowable. He's not going to just hang around listening to our questions, stooping to answer them. But actually, the claim of Mark's gospel, which we've just heard read, is that in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God has made himself known. That is, in in physical space-time history, 2,000 years ago, in the land of Israel, God turned up in the flesh, God the Son taking on human form, able to be seen and heard and touched, able to demonstrate his extraordinary power. And we've been working our way through Mark's Gospel on Sundays and have seen plenty of evidence of God turning up on earth, God in the flesh, doing things only God can do, calming storms, walking on water, feeding 5,000 from a single lunchbox with plenty of leftovers. Our question may be, God, if you're really there, why don't you prove it? God's answer would be, well, have you looked at Jesus? Seriously. Have you ever read the accounts of Jesus' life as an adult? I have shown myself. And the great thing is that when Jesus was on earth, he didn't just display his power, he talked to people people from all sorts of walks of life, all sorts of questions. He made himself available for discussion, even for questioning, for for cross-examination. And that's where we are this morning in chapter 12. Here, Jesus is doing a kind of Q&A in Jerusalem. It's the equivalent of PMQs or FMQs. It's God's king on the stand at the press conference taking questions. So it really is a case of If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Literally, God the Son, on earth, available for questions. So what do you think they chose? In all the confusion and anxiety and pain of human experience, of all the questions you could ask in the world, what do you think they went for? It's there at the end of verse 14, if you're able to look at the passage. Here's the question. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? That's their question. I mean, should we pay taxes to Caesar is their question. It's a bit of a massive anticlimax, isn't it? I mean, what a waste of a question. And it is actually a real waste because they don't even want to know the answer. Not sincerely. Look at how the episode is introduced at the start, verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. This question is a trap. And Jesus knows it. Look at his reply in verse 15. Why put me to the test? This question isn't asked out of a kind of desire to learn, but as a trap, a a snare, a test to catch Jesus in. And so let me just say right up front, it's good to take a moment to ask ourselves honestly whether we really want the answers from God. Do we really want to find out what God thinks, what God wants, really want to know the truth? Because the Bible shows people doing this to Jesus again and again and again. In fact, the Bible's story on the history of humanity, it's not that God is hiding from us, but we are hiding from him. In fact, every time he makes himself clear, especially in his son Jesus coming to earth, we do everything we can to push him to the side, to run away, to silence the broadcast, to avoid the light. So, if you could ask God one question, what would be your aim in doing it? Put him to the test? Catch him out? Hold him at arm's length? Or really get to know the truth? Let's watch how Jesus responds to this particular trap. My plan this morning is to work through the conversation fairly briefly and then to draw out three implications for today from what Jesus says here. So let's dive into the conversation. The the key thing to realize about this question is it's not just a kind of dry, boring question about taxation. It's actually a, a real kind of popular and political hot potato. It's actually a dangerous, incendiary trap. There's a clue to that in who's asking. Um, So the Pharisees and the Herodians, the last time we saw them interrogating Jesus, they asked him about God's view on divorce. Again, a a, a hot topic in popular opinion. But they did it knowing full well that Herod, the regional governor, was at the time sleeping with his brother's wife and beheaded the guy who last said that divorce was wrong. Their last question was a political question hand grenade. And this time, having failed to skewer Jesus with that one, this one they're going bigger, right to the top. Caesar in Rome. It's hard for us, I think, to, 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 to grasp how dangerous a question this is. I guess it would be a bit like asking a public leader on the streets of Hong Kong to comment on the record about what's currently going on. Rome is a great empire. It's an unstoppable force militarily. At this point in history, Rome is occupying Israel's territory. Since AD 6, they've been claiming unpopular taxes from them. It's so unpopular, in in fact, that tax, that in recent memory, there'd been popular unrest and rebellion triggered by exactly this issue. And so this question is trying to trap Jesus 
between the popular mob and the political powers. It's a dangerous dilemma. Either Jesus supports Roman taxes and loses his popularity with the crowds, in which case the Jewish authorities will safely arrest him. They're waiting for an opportunity. Or he'll go with the crowds and then come, on, come out against Caesar and face the full might of the imperial machinery. Rome will do the dirty work for his opponents as they get rid of another traitor from the, reason, from the region. You see, this really is a conspiracy to trap Jesus, to destroy him one way or another. But nevertheless, the question, the deadly question, comes wrapped in that kind of frothy marshmallow of flattery. Teacher, they say, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God, and here's the dagger, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which is it? Public hero or traitor to the state? But Jesus isn't fooled. He's not caught out. He knows their hearts just as much, actually, as he knows our hearts as we sit here today and think, what question would I ask God and why? He knows whether we're sincerely inquiring or just finding a smokescreen to hold him at arm's length. And, and once again, we see the extraordinary ease with which Jesus evades their deadly dilemma. It's really remarkable. I've heard a few commentators pointing out that with PMQs, uh, Boris Johnson has sometimes struggled a bit with Keir Starmer's forensic questioning, but there is no struggle for Jesus here. His wisdom is just utterly out of their league, like playing chess with a six-year-old. By the end of the conversation, you can see they are marveling at his ability to instantly outsmart the most carefully crafted trap from the best legal, political, religious minds of the day. But actually, Jesus is not trying to show off his ability to debate. It's just like last week. He, he, he's not playing to the cameras for popularity points. He actually has a message for his interrogators. That is, he's not just escaping the trap. He's warning them. He wants them to realize what a serious, dangerous position they themselves are in. And the genius of Jesus is he does all of that with one tiny coin. Just look at it, verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The way he answers the hot potato tax question is brilliant enough just by itself. Um, so they provide him a coin with Caesar's image on it. It has the bust of Tiberius Augustus. And as they do that, it shows two things. Firstly, it shows that Rome is backing this whole financial system. So give Caesar his due. Secondly, though, ha, huh, you were able to provide me one of those coins. Turns out you use them. You're already involved in it. Give Caesar his due. And just by the way, that's the consistent witness of the Bible that Christians are to respect civil authorities, to give them their due, 
to pay our taxes, to listen to their COVID guidelines. It's not compromising our devotion to God to do that. So that's clever enough, Jesus' way out of the trap. Actually, the the bigger reason why he asks about the coin and the likeness on the coin, literally the image on the coin, all of that is to tee up his big punchline. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and here it comes, and to God the things that are God's. So if Caesar's image is on the coin, well, give Caesar his due. Pay what you owe for for your part in this Roman-backed world. But then, render to God the things that are God's. What is it in the world that bears the image of God. Not just a coin or a financial or political system, not just a state. Every single human being, according to the Bible, bears the image of God. See, the the Caesars may have made the denarius and they imprinted it with their image. They put a message saying they were the big boss. But God made the universe Genesis 1 says he made human beings in his image. That is, we have his stamp on us. That is, out of all the species in creation, humans are unique, uniquely made to reflect the creator, made to rule his world under him. That's why we have personhood, consciousness, such communicative abilities. We have the ability to rule the creation. We're made in the image of our creator. And just as that Roman denarius had an inscription pointing up to the big boss, the so-called divine Caesar, well, human beings are supposed to be an image, a reflection, a likeness of the real big boss, the divine creator God. And now that God has turned up on earth in the flesh and he looks these people square in the eye These people trying to trap him, trying to get rid of him. And he says, pay what you owe. Give God his due. If you were here last week, it's actually just like what he said last week. Last week, he told the parable of the tenants, where the son was sent as a final warning to to pay up, a final reminder that these leaders he's talking to are not the owners of God's world, but the tenants in it. Jesus says, if you really want to know what you owe, well, by all means, give Caesar the poll tax. But what about what you owe God? What about the fact that you bear his image? Now, I realize if if you're not particularly familiar with the Bible, this idea of humans being made in God's image, it might not be a category that we really think in much these days. But actually, it is a wonderful truth. I think a really important truth for us socially. And it's a truth with huge implications. So for our remaining time, I, I want to um, spell out three important implications of what Jesus is saying. Jesus has said, every human being bears God's image. We should pay God his due. Now, what are the implications? Here are three. The first is about racism and sexism, and classism, and a host of other isms that affect the way we view other people. 
Jesus says, everyone is made in God's image. The Bible says every person matters. I'm mentioning that because one of the most ugly features of our world and our societies across multiple cultures, actually, is the fact that people are often not treated with the dignity that God has given them. The Bible's crystal clear on that. Every single human being from every race, tribe, uh, tongue, color, has dignity, equal dignity, being made in the image of God. Likewise, actually, every age and stage of human life, a person has dignity. It's not based on our productivity or our cognitive ability or our contribution to society. It's based on the fact that every person bears God's image. It's actually a beautiful truth, the dignity of every human person. And Jesus would say, give God his due. That is, in the way we treat other people, do we love our neighbor, whoever they are, however much they're like us or not like us, even if we disagree with them, their worldview or their behavior, do we still love them, treat them with the dignity appropriate to someone who bears God's image? I mean, what a difference that would make to our increasingly intolerant and divisive, even abusive culture, whether online or in person. Jesus would remind us, treat every person made in God's image with dignity, even on Twitter. As chapter 12, verse 31, we'll put it in a couple of weeks' time, our next guest service, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's what Jesus called the second most important commandment. And that's our first implication, how we treat others. Actually, our next implication is what Jesus called the first commandment, the most important of God's commandments. And this is how we each personally relate to our maker. You see, if every one of us is made in the image of God, not just randomly emerging from a chemical soup through a series of strokes of luck with infinitesimally small probability, but rather created, handcrafted by an infinite personal being, someone who put his stamp on every one of us, who made us conscious, personal, social, able to rule the created order, well, then Jesus says to us, give God his due. Caesar did deserve some credit for, for the whole financial, social, military system that he was operating. So do we not think that the living creator God, the one who gives us every breath, who designed your, your DNA, who fine-tuned the cosmos to make existence possible, do you not think he deserves some credit, some acknowledgement, some thanks, some obedience? Again, we'll hear this in a couple of weeks' time. Chapter 12, verse 30, the greatest commandment, says Jesus, is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's just a description of everything, everything I am, all my heart, soul, mind, strength. Why is that an appropriate response? Why is that giving God his due? Well, because he, he gave me each of those aspects. Every day of my life, every minute of every hour is owed to him because it's his decision to keep me going, to start the universe to sustain it, to start me and sustain me. 
I was reminded actually afresh of this the other day. I was, I was walking through the hermitage of Braid and I suddenly felt a, a big thump on my head. Slightly dazed, I didn't really know what was going on. It turned out a quite large branch had fallen and hit me square on the head. Any bigger, I think it could have actually been quite serious. As it was, I, I felt dizzy that evening, headaches. It reminded me that life is fleeting in this world. I've got as many days as God gives me, and he deserves all I am each day. I, I owe him worship as my maker with the mind he gave me, the heart he keeps pumping, the strength I'm given each day. So that's the second implication of being made in God's image. Not just love neighbor, but love God. At which point, if you're still following along, if you haven't zoned out that's so easy on a stream service, if you're with me, you may realize we have a problem. This is the third implication. Certainly, if the, the Pharisees were listening carefully to Jesus' answer, they would realize they have a problem as they were trying their best to trap Jesus and remove God's son, God's king. Because the reality is, whether for them or for us, none of us have loved our neighbors as much as ourselves. None of us have, have given God his due when it comes to the way we live, to the way we love him. I absolutely take his gifts and ignore the giver. I absolutely enjoy his world and its blessings, but reject his rule, his commands. I use him, ignore him, don't pay what I owe. That inscription on the Roman coin, it said that Tiberius was the son of the divine Augustus. Now, that was a bit of an exaggeration on the part of the Roman empires. The old cult of divinity it was just idolatry, really. I mean, it's right to pay taxes, but not to worship the state. But the inscription on Jesus' life actually genuinely said, this is the Son of God, worship him. The voice from heaven at the start of Mark's gospel introduces him that way, this is my beloved Son, in Mark 9, we hear it again, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so many of us don't, haven't. Don't listen to Jesus, don't give Jesus a second thought. It's not, that we, not just we don't love our neighbor or love our God, it's when God comes to us in Jesus, we, we push him away, ignore him, reject him, try to get rid of him, pretend I'm too busy. Certainly that's what's going on in the passage. Which means, thirdly, the most important implication of Jesus' words is that we're all in massive moral debt. We've run up, if you like, an absolutely massive tax bill, a moral overdraft with the creator of the universe. Day after day, we've been mistreating people made in his image. Day after day, we've been misusing our lives, not in worship and thanks of him, to serve him, but ignoring him and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he told us to listen to. We've just run up a massive moral debt. And that's even us who call ourselves Christians. Which, as I draw to a close, is why the good news of Mark's gospel is such good news. See, just before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for this Q&A cross-examination, he explained why he was going there. And he said, I'm not going there just to answer questions. I'm going there to die on the cross. He entered the city knowing 
precisely he was going to die. And why? Well, in his own words, he came and died to pay the ransom for many. Jesus came to serve those trapped in debt, to pay that moral overdraft we can never overcome, the record of unpaid worship and love to God that we can never make up. Jesus comes to pay a ransom, to, to settle our debts with God. And actually, so many of the answers we began with, sorry, some of the questions we began with are answered here. So, is trying to be good good enough? No, not by a long way. None of us have, but Jesus came to pay the price for us. How can I be sure what happens when I die? Well, come to Jesus. Let him pay the debt, and you will have certain hope, a certain future of eternal life beyond the grave. It's an absolutely wonderful offer. It's an offer that's open to absolutely anyone, whether it's your first time in church or you're one of those who've been listening in for years and never actually admitted your own personal need. Today would be a great day to come to Jesus and let him pay what you owe. Because as I close, here's my final thought. I've been saying all morning, what question would we ask God? But I want to close by warning us the question that God will ask us. This is the question. What did you do with my son, Jesus? That's the key question. We heard last week, he's the cornerstone around which God is building eternity. And so the key question anyone faces in life, the key question we'll, we'll face when we meet our maker and our judge at the end of our lives is, what did you do with my son, Jesus? When I told you to listen to him, did you? When he told you to give God his due, did you? When he offered to pay your debts, did you listen? When he said to turn and trust in him, did you? I'm going to close with a simple prayer. This is a prayer that responds directly to what Jesus says here. It's a prayer that Christians will want to keep praying through our lives. But if you want to begin following Jesus, this would be the kind of prayer that would enable you to start Feel free to echo it in your heart, or I'd love to get in contact if you want to know more about that. Let me pray. Father, we admit that though we are made in your image, we do not give you what you are due. We have not loved others as ourselves. We have not loved you with all our heart soul, mind, strength. Thank you that Jesus came to ransom us through his death, to pay our debt. Please help us to trust him and to live with him as king from now on. In Jesus' name, amen.